From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. On October 8th, the Supreme Court will hear an extremely important set of cases deciding whether LGBTQ employees are protected under federal sex discrimination laws. In one case before the court, the ACLU is representing Amy Stevens, a trans woman who was fired after she came out to her employer. With us today to take a deep dive into the Stevens case and the broader fight for trans rights is one of Amy's lawyers, my formidable colleague Chase Strangio, Deputy Director of the ACLU's LGBT and HIV Project, and as of last week, an Emmy Award winner. Chase, thanks very much for joining us today. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I can't start anywhere except the Emmy red carpet. What on earth were you doing at the Emmys? Well, this was a surprising turn of events in my life. When I went to law school, I didn't think, you know what, I'm going to make it to the primetime Emmy red carpet. Um, But uh, last week, I went with Laverne Cox to the Emmys. Our goal was really to raise awareness about the cases before the Supreme Court that are answering the question of are LGBTQ people covered under federal law? And it felt like no one was talking about it. And what better context in the United States than a big pop culture celebrity event to try to raise awareness. So we went. Well, it's great. And you looked great. And the pictures were great. And so you were there to raise awareness. Laverne had an amazing hand clutch that had October 8th on it and a rainbow flag. It was really cool. But you weren't only a guest at the Emmys. You and our colleague Molly Kaplan also won an Emmy. Can you tell us about that project? Yeah, so um, two days later at the News and Documentary Emmys, the ACLU was nominated for a film about Kai Shapley, who's a young trans girl in Texas. And the film just sort of follows her journey with her mom and her family coming out as trans and them coming to terms with her transness. And it's a beautiful film and it got nominated and we were like, oh, That's great. This is a really important story. And I think it really resonates for people, especially for people who are parents or for anyone who's sort of struggled with any aspect of sort of coming to terms with who they are. There's something really resonant and personal about it. And then it won an Emmy at the News and Documentary Emmys. And that's uh, also pretty exciting. Well, it's a well-deserved award. And it's a really powerful short that people should definitely check out. It's not every case that lands someone at the Emmys, but it does seem to be something particular about the fight for trans rights, where we know that the courts aren't going to be enough and there is this big piece of changing cultural norms. How do those two parts of your job fit together? Yeah, I mean, I sort of think this should always be a part of legal work. I mean, the reality is, is that we can push narratives in the courtroom, we can change formalistic laws, but ultimately we know that the real fights are happening in people's lives on the ground. And and particularly when it comes to the fight for trans justice, where the community is so misunderstood and there's so much false rhetoric out there, so much of the work is pushing forward in the courts, pushing forward in the legislatures, but also, and critically important, is making sure that trans people are speaking our own stories and that the country is aware of what it means to be trans. And so we can't win the fight if we're just fighting in the courts. And so, so much of the work is cultural production work, too. Well, I want to come back to some of the stuff that you've been doing outside of the courtroom, but let's zero in a bit on the case that's before the Supreme Court next week. Amy Stevens... A trans woman was fired soon after coming out. Can you tell us what is the question before the court and what really is at stake? Yeah, so Amy's story is really, it's so simple. She 
was an employee at a funeral home outside of Detroit for six years. At the time, she was understood to be a man. She was assigned male at birth, and she was a valued employee. During that time, she was struggling with the fact that she knew inside, as she had for a young age, that, that she is a woman. And she started to seek counseling and with the support of her wife, decided that she could no longer live this lie. And so she informed her employer. She wrote this beautiful letter coming out saying, I am Amy Stevens. I am a woman and I'm going to come to work as my authentic self. And then he just fired her. And she, at the time, this was in 2013, filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And so the the case has been making its way through the courts for the last six years. And the central question is, does Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination because of sex under federal law, include discrimination against someone because that person is trans? And that's the question. And it's actually a question that the lower courts have almost unanimously ruled uh, in favor of trans employees. And if you think about it, it makes sense. If you're firing someone because you thought they were one sex and they are actually another sex, Mm. it is quite intuitively because of sex. And, And lower courts have really come around to holding that in a variety of contexts over the past two decades. And they have grappled with it both as sort of changing sexes because of sex. And also, I think something else that's intuitive is that federal law that prohibits discrimination because of sex also prohibits discrimination because of sex stereotypes. Mm. And disagreeing with the notion of a trans person is fundamentally just rejecting the idea that they don't meet your expectation of what a man is or what a woman is. And so that's another way that the courts have ruled in favor of trans employees in comparable context and also the way the lower court ruled in favor of Amy. And in addition to the Amy Stevens case, there's also a case addressing sexual orientation and whether that is protected by sex discrimination laws as well. Yeah, so there's two cases that deal directly with the question of whether discrimination because of sex encompasses discrimination because of sexual orientation. And in both those cases, the facts, like the facts in Amy Stevens' case, are an employer fires an employee once the employer either learns of or has other reason to uh, discriminate because the individual is gay. And those cases are now also before the court in a comparable question of whether Title VII prohibits prohibits those firings. Well, the way you present the case and the reading that I've done about it, you are right. It does sound intuitive to me. How can be discrimination based on transness not be discrimination based on sex? But this is not going to be the easiest argument, right? So what is the biggest challenge to this win that seems like a no-brainer to you and me? I think the two main arguments that our opponents are advancing are one is grounded in sort of what Title VII is about. So the other side is saying, well, in 1964, there is no way that Congress intended Title VII to apply to LGBTQ people. Mm. So that's one of their arguments. And our response to that is that may very well be true, but that's just simply not how the law works. It's it, The court's job is not to discern what Congress may or may not have wanted in 1964. It's to apply the language language of the statute. And Justice Scalia, who is not known as a progressive jurist in any way, to say the least, to say the least, was someone who in a different Title VII case involving same-sex sexual harassment said, well, it may be true that Congress didn't anticipate Title VII covering sexual harassment between two men, but they wrote a broad statute and our job is to apply it. And that's all we're going to do. And in a 9-0 opinion, essentially said Title VII encompasses harassment between employees of the same sex. 
End of story. And so that's sort of the response to, well, Congress couldn't have wanted this because that's not the test. Mm. And then the other argument that uh, the other side is making is really one that's playing on fears of transness and Mm. also commitment to enforcing gender norms. And that argument is if we allow trans people to be covered under Title VII, then we're going to abolish sex separation altogether. Hmm. And this is a total red herring for two reasons. The first is that when a trans person enters a sex-segregated space consistent with who they are, the space remains sex-segregated. So for me, if I go to the men's bathroom, it is still a men's bathroom. And so one of the things that they're doing with this argument is sort of enforcing the idea that trans people aren't really who we know we are, sort of saying our existence collapses sex segregation. And Mm. that's just a specious anti-trans argument altogether. The other argument that they're making here is really one that sort of betrays their commitment to really traditional gender norms. But what they want is a world where workplaces can see men and women as fundamentally different and treat them differently, which is really counter to Title VII altogether. And so they're saying, well, Title VII was never intended to get at discrimination unless it disfavored one sex over the other. And they want to enforce workplace norms where employers could could fire a man for being insufficiently masculine as long as they fired a woman for being insufficiently feminine, which is hopefully something we do not want as a general matter because it would roll back the entire paradigm of sex discrimination law about 30 years. But they are raising that argument. Well, that the last point that you made about how this really applies to anybody who in any way doesn't conform to some traditional notion that is defined by whomever of what uh, gender norm or sex should be, this really implicates anybody who wants to break in any way from that traditional framework. Yeah. And I think the scariest thing is that the employer would get to decide who does. So you could come in and be a heterosexual, sort of traditionally masculine man and say that I have to leave at 4 p.m. today to pick up my kid. and <laughs> Which I did we, several times last yeah, week. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And the employer could say, whoa, 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 men are the primary breadwinners. You can't be responsible for child rearing in this way. And so I'm going to fire you. And, and obviously that's an extreme example, but that is is the type of gender role stereotyping that they are seeking to enforce with many of the arguments they're advancing in this case. Well, the other side has submitted a whole slew of amicus briefs, and some of them are the usual suspects. Some of the people who are trying to enforce, quote-unquote, traditional gender norms are who you would think, sort of the religious right, social conservatives of various stripes. But there's also maybe the most troubling or most difficult set of opponents are folks who are doing it in the name of what they consider feminism. Can you talk about that sort of strain of attack? Yeah, there are groups that are committed to sort of strain of uh, anti-trans rhetoric under the guise of feminism. And their argument is that if we protect trans people in the workplace, it will somehow harm non-trans women. And we see this argument in a variety of contexts. It's a place where you have 
people who are purporting to advocate for women's rights aligning themselves with the far-right groups to say trans people are fundamentally at odds with women's rights. I do want to point out first and foremost that this is a very fringe, small subset of people who do this in the name of feminism. The major women's rights groups are wholly on the side of the trans employees in this set of cases, including the National Women's Law Center, Mm. what was formerly now, Know Your Nine, all of the groups that we see leading the fight for gender justice at Mm -hmm. this time are sort of arguing that our liberation is tied up with yours. And if the court rolls back sex discrimination protections, what we know to be true is that cis women, non-trans women will be hurt by that. I think that the group of people who are claiming that trans women are men and that transness is a threat to womanhood somehow are a group of people that have so tied up their own identity in relation to the exclusion of others that it's really hard for me to take it seriously. It's not like a zero-sum game. There's not only so much womanhood to go around. Like, my gender doesn't take away from another person's gender. I think in the context of marriage equality, we would see a version of this argument where people would claim somehow that if same-sex couples could get married, it would undermine the marriages of different sex couples as if, like, one person's marriage is in any way defined by a wholly unrelated set of people who are just living their lives. And I think we should think of this as as absurd. And I will say that it's largely being led by white women because I think that there is the history of feminism that is exclusionary, is one that we can trace through time. And unfortunately, many strands of feminism have excluded people, whether it's Black women, immigrant women, disabled women, queer women, and now trans women. This is part of the legacy of a subset of feminism. And I think we have to call it out as such. But, you know, we can't define any group for liberation in relation to excluding others. And I would say that is exactly what they're doing. Well, it's important to highlight that this is a fringe element. It's a vocal fringe, but it's a fringe element. And it seems like, you know, there are folks who are quite set in whatever their ways are or their views are on gender because of their deeply held religious beliefs or other sort of deep ideological commitments. But who's in play here? Whose minds do you think we can change? I mean, you've talked a lot about your family, how your dad is a big Trump supporter. I don't know if he's rooted in religion in his beliefs, but there are these folks who aren't necessarily religious ideologues, but they might be in play. These are people who you can possibly convince. Who do you think you're trying to, who's not there yet that you think you convince? I mean, I think there's two ways of thinking about what types of convincing need to happen. There's the sort of legal convincing, and I really do think that the argument we're putting forth is a very straightforward textual argument and that we should be able to convince textualists within the legal world that the words because of sex apply broadly and that Mm. they include the discrimination that's at issue here because it really, you can't even explain why you don't like trans people without using the word sex at some point. And so I think that is sort of a conservative argument that should and I hope will win in the courts, particularly in the Supreme Court where we actually only have to convince one or two people. But that isn't going to win the day for trans people. That isn't going to save trans lives as Mm. fundamental fundamentally as sort of culture change work and power and base building work will. Mm. 
And I think there we have to do two things. One is we have to continue to center trans people so that people see us for who we are, Mm -hmm. that, you know, in people's minds, we may threaten everything they believe to be true. But the more that you just engage with a person, it starts to break down that assumption. Mm -hmm. So that if we just shove people to the corner and don't let them speak for themselves, that we won't be able to do that work. And then I think the other thing that we just have to fundamentally do as part of the project of gender liberation in the United States is really challenge the idea of the gender binary and what it means to have a gender. I think Mm -hmm. we're really fixated on gender norms and biological notions of gender that we're actually moving backwards in some ways. And whether it's sort of a response to anxiety, whether it's response to progress, I think that we actually need to sort of really sit down and ask ourselves, why is it that we can't conceptualize a human being without putting them in a box of male or female? And why is it that we believe that our sex characteristics are so neatly broken down in a binary when Mm. it's just not true, both of people who have intersex traits and for people who are trans and for many other people whose characteristics exist exist on a spectrum, whether it's related to hormones or genitals or chromosomes, which, by the way, many people don't know about themselves. And so I think we have a lot of work in sort of challenging the assumptions that we make about gender and our bodies and our behaviors. In terms of the court, I know, you know, gaming out who's going to vote which way is not the best use of time. But if you had to look forward to when this decision comes out, what do you predict? What do you think is going to happen? Well, we're just, obviously, we're going to win 9 0. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, well, so Scalia did write a 9 0 opinion and on call, as I mentioned. And I think that it is unlikely, you know, unanimous decisions are not the norm these days. And I think it would be very shocking if we saw one here. But I do still think that's how it should come out. I think that we have obviously the four liberals and we assume firmly in our camp. And I think that we will likely be able to turn between one and three of the others. That's at least the optimism that I'm putting out into the universe. That is the legal arguments I think speak for themselves. These are straightforward cases where individuals were fired only because of their sexual orientation or trans status. The straightforward questions in the case to me are easily answered because if you fire someone because of their attraction to someone of the same sex, that is because of sex. If you fire someone because in your mind they change sex, that is because of sex. This is not a case that asks the court to define what sex is. It is a case that asks the court to identify the scope of discrimination because of sex. And that is a wholly different project and one that should be easily resolved. Right. And you're not even asking them to whatever it means to endorse a certain lifestyle or anything like that. They really just have to say, is this sex discrimination? Exactly. They have to say, is this sex discrimination? And the other side is always saying, well, you should go to Congress and get your groups added to the statute. And to that, I would say they should go to Congress. If they believe that the broad language of Title VII is operating in ways that they don't like, then they certainly are free to go to Congress to ask Congress to write an exemption exactly how they wish it to be applied. Mm. But the reality is, is that the plain language applies broadly here. And I think that we should be able to get five. I believe it, too. I mean, the the arguments are extremely strong. The briefs are extremely well-written. And we have our own David Cole arguing the case. So I think we're in good hands. But turning back from the court to the social side of trans rights movement, you talked about the importance of centering trans people, telling their stories, having people understand that trans people are people, as hard as that may be to (laughs) think that that's something that you have to convince people. But, you know, you think about the LGBT movement and just 
the exposure of people coming out as gay and how that changed so many people's minds just to realize that their coworkers, their friends, their family members may have been gay or lesbian. But I've also heard about the fact that visibility, especially with regard to trans folks, is a complicated thing and it can also lead to exposure and some increased risk. Can you talk about the sort of balance between this need for increased visibility, but also the need for privacy? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two really important things I think that we we should be thinking about here with respect to sort of visibility and representation. As we saw in the context of marriage equality and the movement for LGB rights, that obviously sort of changing the public conversation had a huge impact on the policy and legal victories that we were able to see in what was considered a relatively short time period and always true of civil rights movements. You know, you sort of integrate into the sort of popular culture and public discourse and it does have an impact. But I think as is always true and particularly true in the trans context is that it also creates a backlash. So you can't rely on visibility and representation on its own because the reality is that the people who are experiencing the most violence are the black trans women on the streets who are seen as visibly trans in their everyday lives who are now being murdered at sort of epidemic proportions. And so we can't say visibility will save us when we know that people are being murdered in the street. What we need to do is leverage visibility to actually create redistributive and meaningful changes on the ground that keep people safe from discrimination and also safe uh, from violence. And and the other thing I would say is that the more conversations that we have about transness and then the more people are looking for who is trans in their lives, obviously the more people become targets for individual campaigns of discrimination. And, And sort of one thing I would point to is we represent two trans girls in Connecticut who are in high school and who happen to be successful track runners. And in the midst of sort of the conversations about trans equality, as we've seen sort of trans representation on TV rise, These two individuals are the subject of such unbelievable vitriol and so many campaigns against their very existence that if we're only looking on Pose and Laverne Cox and the Emmys and thinking that we've solved it and not seeing what's happening to like individual black trans girls in Connecticut, for example, then we're not doing our work because we're not having a holistic intervention in the types of discrimination and violence that our community is facing. So we have just a lot of work to do to make sure that people's lives are actually improving instead of looking like they're improving because of magazine covers. It's an important point. And as two of the bigger sports fans in the ACLU, I want to bring you back for a full conversation just on trans and sports. But So ready. <laughs> I can't wait. I do want to you know, turn to a personal note because you talked about visibility and obviously you are among the most visible trans activists, I think, at the moment. And I know from my perspective as an African-American working on free speech and especially working on free speech and racial justice, the division between our personhood and our work sometimes gets blurry. And there's an old joke about like, are you a black professional or are you a professional black? (laughs) Meaning, (laughs) are you a black person who's a lawyer? Is your job to be black? And that's always, I think, a tough balance, you know, like, representation versus tokenism and all those sorts of conflicts that we go through on a daily basis. And I know from my own perspective, it can be extremely challenging. It's rewarding. It's empowering. I feel like I'm doing something, but it's also a huge challenge and it takes a toll. And I know this is something that you've thought about a lot and talked about a lot as well. So I don't know if there's an analogous saying, are you a trans professional or professional trans, but how do you sort of conceptualize those roles? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really important question for anyone who's sort of breaking into a world that is dominated by those who are different and almost been definitionally exclusive of your group of people. And Mm. when it comes to sort of big legal nonprofits that are mostly cis, mostly white, mostly straight, I think there are a lot of questions about what it means to be an outsider in that and what is our role. Um, And I think for me, as sort of a white, transmasculine lawyer, there is a lot of access that I have. So I the access allowed me to break into the institution to be present, to hold power in these spaces. And then it felt like my responsibility to sort of use that power to be, as you might say, sort of professionally trans, because I just have felt that there are not the first out trans lawyer at the ACLU, mm. that there were many things that people didn't know. And so how, with all of my access and privilege, if I didn't make my transness central to my work, Was I really doing the work of sort of opening the door for the next generation of people who could further disrupt the expectations of what it would mean to be a civil rights attorney? Like, could you be trans? Could you be a trans woman of color and not just be cast as a victim, but Mm -hmm. seen as a leader? And our movement has been led by trans women of color. And so I think the danger of making precious the role of the civil rights lawyer is that we end up sort of putting primacy on the voices of the white you know, formally educated individuals within the LGBTQ community instead of recognizing that the real work has always been done by those who have carried so many more burdens. And so it has felt very much like my responsibility to use my transness as well as name my access in order to break down some of the assumptions about who can speak and when. Although, I mean, obviously, like anyone, you know, putting out my own body and my own story as a teaching tool in and of itself comes with an incredible personal cost that carry every day and that I continue to carry in the hopes that it will be of value in the larger movement for trans liberation. And a lot of our listeners are younger folks who are aspiring to be the next Chase Strangio in some way, shape, or form. And it sounds like what you're saying is be courageous, but also be humble. Are there any other words of advice that you would share with folks who are looking to join the movement or already in the movement, but are in an earlier stage of their careers? Any words of advice for what a young (laughs) aspiring Chase? I mean, I think from my perspective, anyone who wants to come into legal work, I would say, yeah, like definitely be courageous and be humble. Those things need to go together. And also that we all have a responsibility to do two things. One is to know that we're not right all the time and to name that. I think especially among lawyers, there is the expectation (laughs) of speaking as if our authority is always grounded in some correctness, which is usually not the case. And so sort of knowing that we are wrong and that we make mistakes and that the people are around you who act like they don't are also wrong and making mistakes. So knowing that and then also and something that I say a lot is sort of naming that there is no perfect intervention in a system that is predicated on violence in a system that was organized and founded on anti-blackness and maintaining chattel slavery. This is a system of violence that we are utilizing to the best of our ability for harm reductive purposes. But that does not mean that we will find the perfect intervention that leaves us free of blood on our hands. We will always cause harm in our work. And that doesn't mean we do nothing. It means that we name it and identify the costs and benefits of the choices that we make and hold ourselves accountable and those that we're working with accountable. And that means being honest about the work that we're doing and saying, yes, like we are at the Supreme Court next week and that will have a huge impact on trans lives. It will neither be the end of our movements nor the liberation of them, but it is a part of the work and we will honor 
all of the impacts of the decisions that we make. And so I think that to me is how we remain accountable in the work that we do. It's an extremely powerful message to young trans activists, but also to all of us. And what keeps you hopeful? I mean, if you're it, hopeful, it seems I, like you're hopeful. I, 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 you know, I have a lot of energy and I have a lot of energy in part because I get to do work that I both find incredibly intellectually stimulating that I get to work with people who inspire me every day. And, you know, I think that is a gift that mm. I am incredibly grateful for. And I stay hopeful because I know and have met and worked with the elders in our community who who have fought so hard and survived so much. I have engaged with my clients and my colleagues who are in prison, who are locked away and maintain hope and resistance under incredibly violent circumstances. And so to me, if the people who have come before me, if the people who we lock in cages can keep fighting every day, then certainly I can too. Who are we to be hopeless? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks very much, Chase, for all your amazing work on behalf of the ACLU, on behalf of trans rights, and knock them dead at the Supreme Court next week. All right. Thanks, Emerson. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoy At Liberty, you can help support the show and the rest of the ACLU's important work by donating at www.aclu.org liberty. We really appreciate it. Till next week. Peace.